It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Australian politics has gotten extremely weird over the last 10 years, to say the least. How do political parties survive and thrive in an era where their popular appeal and their membership and their, their social and economic base has started to wither away? The rise of China is more important to Australia than the Cold War ever was. And yet we think we can enter that period with essentially an unreformed party system that was basically last redefined at the beginning of the Cold War. It is the political class that has focused on identity issues. And then, in fact, for the most part, the public itself is less concerned with it than the political class. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham. And I'm Catherine Manstead. And this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those familiar with this podcast will recognise some changes this year. We are now partnering with ACAS, who are the world's largest podcast company, and they will be distributing this pod throughout their global network and providing advertising, which will allow us to grow and to continue bringing you guests from Australia and the rest of the world to discuss the pressing national security issues of the day. Our regular listeners will also note that we have had a longer break than usual over the summer here in Australia. We would have come to you a little bit earlier with this pod, um, but as has been in the news of late, Canberra, Australia's capital city and where we, re- where we record this pod, has been mauled by a vengeful mother nature over the past couple of months. We've endured mega bushfires, extreme levels of toxic smoke, dust storms, catastrophic hailstorms, and as an illustration of how extreme these storms have been, a large number of our cars here at the NSC have been completely written off due to hail damage and are under drivable. It was that heavy. And of course, the greatest storms of all that we've been enduring is the political storm over climate change, what causes it and what our responses should be. And with that as the backdrop, we will be putting together a special series of podcasts on the national security implications of climate change. We're going to be looking at the physical impacts of climate change, such as weather events, sea level rises, acidification of the oceans, droughts, bushfires, etc., and asking what we need to do to increase preparedness and our national resilience. We'll be asking if policy making is keeping up with these challenges and we will be also looking at some of the disinformation campaigns that have been focusing on issues like Australia's recent bushfires, the whole Greta Thunberg phenomenon and the associated culture wars. What we will not be doing, however, is stepping outside of our area of expertise. We won't be buying into the political and scientific debates and neither will we be discussing what Australia's climate policies should be. We will be leaving that to the 
politicians, scientists and climate specialists as we stick to the national security implications and related policy responses. Look out for that special series when it drops in the coming weeks. But in matters slightly less uh, apocalyptic, today we uh, have a special guest in the studio. We're joined by the Director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute, Sam Rogavine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Catherine, and hi, Chris. And our discussion today is going to be anchored around a paper that you recently wrote, Sam, for the Lowy Institute, uh, with much serendipity given that this is Brexit Day uh, that we're recording this podcast on in the UK. Your paper is entitled our very own Brexit and looks at all of the things that could possibly go wrong in Australian domestic politics. Now, my first question for you, Sam, is how did the director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program come to write a book about Australian domestic politics? Well, it's not a book, it's not a paper exclusively about uh, our domestic politics, and it does um, it does go into Australia's place in Asia in the later chapters. But really what I wanted to do from the beginning is write what I've come to think of uh, subsequently as a crossover book. Uh, I wanted to write something that spoke to both the foreign policy audience that the Lowy Institute generally caters to, uh, but also to a broader political audience. And I, I tend to think that they are, they are quite separate. There's not a lot of overlap in the two, uh, between the two, uh, but also that I could say something valuable to both of them. For the domestic political audience, my observation would be that uh, particularly among public commentators, maybe this is slightly less true of academics, but among public commentators on Australian politics, uh, our political system is treated almost as a closed system, as kind of sui generis. So we discuss Australian politics without really any reference to the outside world and what's going on uh, in other democracies. That seems to me is a mistake. And so what I tried to do is begin very much from the outside in and to say, okay, so that Australian politics has gotten extremely weird over the last 10 years, to say the least, you know, six prime ministers in 10 years, um, huge uh, culture war battles over issues such as climate change, uh, as you mentioned, Chris, uh, among many others. And uh, even, you know, political instability and voter backlash at state level as well. And I, I think that the best explanation for why that's happened lies outside Australia. And you see uh, an interesting line between the election of President Trump in the US and the Brexit referendum in the UK. But it's not the same line that a lot of commentators see, which is that these phenomenon can be explained perhaps by um, liberal blacksliding, by the resurgence of populism or an authoritarian instinct um, in, in the population at large. You see something different that is the thread uniting those events. And what is that? Yeah. So I, I think actually the evidence for the proposition that Western democracies, that voters in Western democracies uh, are transforming their values, which is to say they're becoming more right-wing in most ways, like they, they favour more closed societies, um, uh, they're less tolerant, uh, they're less open to other cultures. Um, that the, the evidence for that proposition is actually pretty thin. In fact, the evidence that I see points the other way, that our societies are becoming more, steadily more liberal over time, means Australia very much included. 
Nevertheless, it's hard to deny the evidence before your eyes. In Europe in particular, populist parties are doing very well. And of course, President Trump was elected against everyone's expectations uh, in the United States. So how do you explain those two things? And in fact, we could add Brexit into the mix as well. How do we explain the fact that even though Britain is becoming, I think, a more tolerant uh, and liberal society over time, nevertheless, it voted for Brexit. Sorry, Sam. Just just before you get go down that path, mm. could you could you give us a few of the data points that you're seeing that says that Australia and even the UK is actually becoming a lot more liberal? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to be able to quote statistics at you right now. They're they're in the book, so I hope listeners will pick up a copy. But um, what I can tell you is that the uh, Australian Election Survey, which is in fact the latest edition, came out I think in December of last year. Uh, after the the 2019 election, uh, which uh, surveys Australian attitudes towards uh, various social issues, including uh, issues like abortion, multiculturalism, uh, tolerance of uh, you know sexual differences, for instance, yeah, uh, homosexuality, I, I, and so on, gay yeah, marriage. That's right. In your book, you actually cite the the gay marriage plebiscite. Without being a plebiscite, actually got up by a fairly large yeah, degree. Yeah, a very a very handsome margin. So I think that's another indicator for me that in. In fact, Australian society is pretty tolerant. And to throw one of your own statistics back at you, just oh, look at your you. book here, um, the 2019 Lowy Institute poll showed that 72% of Australians regard globalisation as mostly good. And 67% agree that overall immigration is a positive impact on the economy. So not the kind of the stuff of the far right yeah. uh, by any means. Yeah. And I think generally the concerns about a sort of a rise of populist right-wing sentiment that you hear from commentators, the mistake that those commentators are making is that they are seeing uh, the the rise of polarisation in the among the political class, and they are then projecting that onto the Australian population. But really, if there's a, an overall theme in the book about Australian politics, it's that the concerns of the political class and of the Australian public have become almost totally divorced, that there, there's really very little uh, overlap and very little connection between the political class and the public. And I think that's actually true in most Western democracies. So this leads me back to the point uh, I was going to make in relation to your question, Catherine, about how do you explain the rise of these uh, apparently populist politicians and populist parties and of populist uh, perhaps ideas such as Brexit. So to me, the, the best explanation for this is the fact that the major parties in all these Western democracies are in decline. And that is happening in Australia as well. So most mature Western democracies, Europe, the United States, Australia, have big centre-right and centre-left political parties that are basically, with exceptions, they're, they're, they're industrial age inventions. Uh, and all, all, all of them are declining in membership and in vote share. Now, th- that manifests itself differently in different um, uh, countries because their voting systems differ and their cultures differ. So in Europe, where the voting systems tend to be more open to new parties, uh, the older parties you'll find uh, are giving way. Um, well, France would be an example. France is an excellent that, right? example of where the two big parties didn't even make the presidential runoff. Uh, Germany is an example of where the the um, the old centre-left party has basically given way to the Greens and the old centre-right party is giving way to the, the AFD, which is now the official opposition in the, in the Bundestag. Uh, in the Netherlands at the last election in 2017, uh, a country close to my heart, the, the Labour Party went from, I believe it was 28 seats to seven seats. So this is, this is pretty typical for Europe. Similar trends in, uh, similar things happened in Sweden, 
um, Greece as well as another example. In the UK, it's different because the voting system basically entrenches the major parties at the centre of the system, as it does in Australia as well. But nevertheless, when you look at uh, the the membership numbers for those parties and the primary vote trends in Australia, they are in sustained decline. And so what happens when those parties decline is that they lose their grip on a section of the vote that has now drifted towards populist parties. Or at least that's my contention here. And when you talk about it in your book, you describe this as the hollowing out of parties. Right. And and one thing you your contention you put forward is that when you have a party that is being hollowed out, it's not answering those social or economic concerns that perhaps the party was historically uh, founded to address. The party has less legitimacy and there starts to be incentives for what I think you call desperate measures. Uh, yeah. So, and fans of analytic techniques will enjoy, as I did, one of your observations, which is that we should not see populism as a, uh, rather we shouldn't see populism as a cause of these things, but rather a consequence of the hollowing out phenomenon that you uh, have identified. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what I would argue has happened to these big centre-right and centre-left political parties is that I think typical of any large organisation or large bureaucracy, when they see uh, their their existence, their thriving, uh, the, you know, their, their their future sustainability come under threat, they don't give up. No, no organisation does that. Instead, the members of it look for ways to survive. So, how do political parties survive and thrive in an era where their popular appeal and their membership and their, their social and economic base has started to wither away? Well, I think the answer that most of them have come up with is that they professionalise. Right. So, they, instead of becoming mass membership organisation, they become highly professional organisations, fairly small and fairly self-contained. So, for instance, in Australia now, roughly half the politicians uh, on uh, that belong to the Labor Party and to the uh, uh, Liberal National Coalition are either former staffers or former party officials. So the political parties have essentially gone from being mass membership organisations which represented the interests of a big social and economic base to becoming essentially machines which produce the next generation of politicians, right? So I'm interested, and I want to come back to in a moment the relationship between domestic and foreign policy, because I think there's a yes. lot we can talk about there of interest to um, our podcast listeners. But I do want to touch on something which you speak a bit about in your book, which is the role of identity in politics. And one of you, and I'm now paraphrasing your argument, this is dangerous territory, but, but one thing you point to is in where we have these parties that are perhaps disconnected from the economic and social, um, but their traditional economic and social base, uh, sometimes identity matters come to the fore. And you say in Australia, for instance, and, and other places, that's manifested in the so-called culture wars where politicians start to um, care a lot more about sometimes fringe issues uh, that might not be concerning the rest of the electorate. But I want to put your contentions in conversation with some of the stuff we're seeing out of the US and the writings of Francis Fukuyama, for example, in his book, Identity, recently, where he says that maybe we're getting our frame of analysis wrong here because, you know, it's only really, really recently in the last couple of centuries since, since Karl Marx when we've thought about economics as being the primary motivators for what make people vote. And if you go back in time, if you look at the writings of Socrates, for instance, he was talking about people are not just motivated by material self-interest, but also by the need for dignity and by the need for some uh, sense of identity. So perhaps 
I'm not sure if this is a counter-argument or a dovetail with your argument, is what we're seeing the result of um, people no longer seeing their economic fortunes being mirrored in the parties, um, but instead that people want something different from their politicians. They want to see uh, some essence of themselves refracted in their politicians. They want to see perhaps cultural and identity issues at the fore because uh, in a country like Australia, at least, we've had a lot of uh, progress in terms of our economic wealth and maybe those material issues don't matter as much as some of the more identity-based issues. So with the significant caveat that I haven't read Fukuyama's book, uh, although I've read a couple of reviews and it, uh, it looks fascinating, my, my instinct is to respond that actually the concerns about uh, the, 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 the argument that voters are putting identity to the fore, above, uh, particularly above economic interests, uh, is overstated. And my sense is that um, particularly in Australia, uh, it is the political class that has focused on identity issues. And then, in fact, for the most part, the public itself is less concerned with it than the political class is. And the, the reason for that is that political parties, the, the two major political parties have become so divorced from the economic interests that, that used to tie them to the public that they are searching around for issues that will connect them back. So what I briefly do in the book is trace the history of these two major parties. So, you know, in a nutshell, the Labor Party was formed to represent the political interests of the union movement which at the time that it was formed was absolutely dominant in Australia. The Liberal Party was formed after the war essentially to oppose the interests of the political interests of the union movement, right? So you had a classic, uh, very similar to the UK, a classic uh, duopoly there of one party that was pro-organised labour and the other representing capital against the interests of organised labour. The economy has has transformed to such a degree that that simply no longer makes sense. And in fact, it was the Labor Party in the 1980s that was largely responsible for that transformation of the economy. So we now, we live in a post-union economy now, less than 10%, about 15% if you include the public sector, less than 10% of the private, of private sector workers are unionised. So not only does that call into question what the Labor Party is actually for, like if there's no union movement, why do we have a party of organised labour that dominates politics? It also calls into question what the Liberal Party is for. If there's no such thing as organised labour or almost no such thing as organised labour that influences our politics, why do we need a political party whose founding purpose was to oppose the union movement, right? So- when those two parties lose their essential economic and uh, and social identity in that way, they start searching around for new causes. And so I would argue that the identity politics stuff is really an attempt to do that. And it's been met generally by the public with, I think, indifference. I want to, I do want to come back to some of those questions around identity and the purposes of, of parties, but I, I promised a, a, an interlude on domestic and foreign policy. And that to me is, mm. is one of the the great things about this crossover book, because you're right, sometimes those doing domestic policy don't think about the world of foreign policy and vice versa. Um, in his forward, very generous forward to your book, George Megalogenis says that this is a very important paper um, because it compels the practitioners of domestic policy to think about foreign policy and vice versa. And it strikes me that 
I mean, you're not the only person doing this at the moment. There's also a quite a big trend in the US and in the US election of um, the, the Democrat side of politics in particular, trying to map foreign policy onto domestic policy. For example, Elizabeth Warren in her foreign policy manifesto in foreign affairs last year said that we can no longer, or we have to kind of divorce ourselves from the comfortable assumption that domestic and foreign policies are separate. And it occurs to me that not just in the democratic side of, of American politics, but that we are seeing more of a collision between these two fields. So we're seeing, for instance, uh, questions around countries interfering in other countries' democratic policies which or democratic institutions, which brings big questions of great power machinations into conversation with our democratic resilience and the health of our institutions. Mm. We're seeing questions around corruption um, of elites in whether that be kind of in the CCP in China or in a big corporate somewhere in the Western world. And, and those things blur and blend lines between domestic uh, policies and foreign policies. Has it ever been thus that domestic and foreign policy are interlinked and we've just been a little bit blinkered? Or is there more of a convergence now than there has been before? Uh, I would go with ever thus. Um, and in fact, uh, I've contributed a, um, a commentary on the quarterly essay that Peter Harcher wrote late, that was published late last year, in which I'm kind of making that point that, uh, you know, the foreign interference question that's that's been raised, that was so prominent in our political debate in 2019, uh, that it's extremely serious, but we've we've been through this before, and the Western world has been through this before with um, with regard to the Soviet Union, where uh, you know espionage and subversion were you know, part and parcel of the of the Cold War. So yes, that that is a common feature. I think perhaps what's new, and to to go back to your um, where you began on the United States, is that. Uh, what Trump has done uh, is merely by being elected and the way he speaks is to basically unravel the sense that foreign policy belonged to an elite in the United States. Uh, and this is part of, I think, a, a larger um, sense of uh, – of disaffection and disillusionment with political elites that helped get Trump elected in the first place. Um, so Trump, I mean, it's interesting to me, so, so much of the commentary that you get from the foreign policy establishment in Washington has uh, as its at its core uh, a sense of real affront and offence at the way Trump talks. So, for instance, um, uh, commentary that I read about the way Trump is uh, eroding the rules-based order uh, is all about the, f the the way that he talks about alliances, for instance. Very transactional, uh, I'm here to do a deal kind exactly, of... Exactly, exactly. Um, not but, an esteemed diplomat's approach to these and And he, and he doesn't use the language that's, that's commonly associated with the way presidents talk about allies uh, and about in, uh, America's place in the world generally. And... Among those Washington commentators, that that behaviour of Trump's is somehow put above 
uh, in seriousness and in, in terms of its threat to the, uh, to the international order is put above the actual material damage that, for instance, George W. Bush did by more or less unilaterally launching the war against Iraq in 2003. To me, a much more serious breach of international norms uh, and of the rules-based order and of America's standing in the world than anything that Trump has yet uh, achieved despite all his, you know, verbal atrocities. But words matter though, right? And you could argue that allies in our region and other parts of the world are also looking at those words as signals uh, for how Trump may or may not behave in certain circumstances. And they, those words can have a material impact on how, whether or not the allies are feeling comforted or supported by, by the US. Yes. Yeah, if, if, if I could just put that a, a, a bit of a spin on that, I definitely agree with what you're saying about um, the invasion of Iran. However, what you're saying about Trump is just the same as saying that the only difference there is, is the way that he enunciates his policies. If if he enunciated it in a more statesman-like manner, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between, say, the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency. Is that what you're saying? Or do you think that there is actually real palpable differences that, say, South Korea real and Japan really have to consider the American commitment to Northeast Asia at least? Well, I, I think that there are palpable differences. Uh, and I also agree that the language absolutely matters. Uh, and it matters in the sense that uh, what Trump has really done is move the so-called Overton window. So, you know, this idea of what's acceptable now for US presidents to say, and I think we see that reflected in the in the Democratic primaries now. There are things that you can say about America's place in the world that previously you couldn't say that were that were just simply outside the rules and the norms of American discourse. Is that necessarily a bad thing or in, is there a good well, in that I, as well? Well, I, I think it could end up being a good thing in the sense that it, it, it may help to ease America's transition from unipolarity, which is proving to be a very difficult one, but nevertheless, you know, incredibly necessary for Australia that the United States finds a way, finds a language to be, I think, a more normal great power rather than, you know, the single uni, uh, uh, unipolar um, uh, power in the world, which it, it, it simply can no longer be. Well, that seems like a perfect place for a break. So let's do that. We will be back in a minute with more from Sam Rogovine on Australia's very own Brexit. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Listening to the National Security Podcast and hungry for more? Tune in to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Or sink your teeth into Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny, your weekly fry-up of politics and public affairs. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And discover more at policyforum.net. So you mentioned, well, these, these conversations started with this idea of elites kind of having a, a hold on certain conventions and words and policies even. And one of the themes in your book is that in Australia, there are certain policies that Australia has and has had through time, but that exist, in your words, as kind of a, an elite consensus, as opposed to something that has active public buy-in. Yeah. And one of the key ones you mentioned in your book is immigration. Um, can you talk us through, one, why 
you know, an elite consensus on a policy like this might be brittle, it might not be a good thing, and why, in your view, the elite consensus on immigration in Australia is potentially risky? So the the reason I called the book Our Very Own Brexit is that I wanted to draw an eye-catching parallel uh, between what's happening in Australian politics and what's happened in the UK, what is still happening in the UK. Uh, and so to answer your question, it's helpful to for me to briefly kind of recount my version of what I think has happened in the UK with Brexit. Um, And essentially, what I reckon happened is not that there was a huge public backlash against Britain's relationship with Europe. In fact, the opinion polling suggests that barely anyone cared, even as late as 2015 when, you know, the, uh, sorry, um, uh, 2010 is the year I quote in the, uh, the year David Cameron came to office. Uh, At that, at that point, uh, 1% 1% of Brits uh, put uh, relations with Europe at the top of their list of uh, challenges that Britain had. Which may have been why he was so comfortable calling a referendum. It may have been. <laughs> may very well have been. So nevertheless, we, we got to a point in within six years where we had a successful uh, a referendum that actually reversed Britain's position and has now led to Britain's official uh, withdrawal from the European Union. So how did we get there so fast? And my argument in the book is that it had nothing, very little to do with the public. It was not a a a huge shift in public mood. There was no demonstrations on the streets. What happened is that one faction within one party decided that this had to happen. And the party, the center of the party and the leader of the party was weak enough that his hand was forced. Uh, And so David Cameron felt compelled to hold this referendum, uh, A, because he had to keep his Eurosceptic wing within the Tory party happy, and B, because he felt he was at threat from uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party led by Nigel Farage, at electoral threat from that party. And so he had to basically um, uh, you know, put an end to that by having a decisive referendum, which he believed would be you know, a, a, a comfortable reaffirmation of Britain's place in Europe. Of course, it didn't happen that way. It, 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 the vote went the opposite way. But to me, the, the, the core argument here is that this happened because one faction within one party demanded it and the central leadership of the party was too weak to actually um, uh, withstand those kind of claims as, as they had under previous leaders. So the parallel in Australia would be that um, uh, that one faction within one of our parties does the same thing uh, to Australia with regard to immigration. And if we have a reverse course on immigration, then we would break away from Asia the way Britain is now breaking away from Europe. That's the argument in the book, hence the Brexit parallel. And so I'm not arguing, um, and, and it's very important to be explicit on this point because it's been misinterpreted by a few commentators, I'm not arguing that there is a sort of nascent public backlash out there against immigration. In fact, Australians are incredibly tolerant of immigration uh, and it's had enormous benefits. And I think Australians uh, generally accept that and and embrace it. And if, if I could just give a little bit of context there for our international listeners, in terms of Australia's multiculturalism, it's not just a catchphrase that we use. Some statistics to give you an idea of how multicultural Australia actually is. In 2016, which is the date of our last uh, national census, 28.5% of Australians were born overseas. And if you add into that the Australians that have had at least 
one parent born overseas, it comes up to 49% of the Australian population. So it's a it's a real thing in Australia that we have a multicultural identity. As of only a few years ago, last time I checked, Australia and Canada were the only countries in the world that actually had multicultural policies. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, so there's a great deal of uh, public support and embrace of multiculturalism. So this is, I don't, it seems to me no danger of the public turning on that question. The danger is that just like in Britain, in the Tory party, you get one faction within the party, which basically says that in order to save our skins, we need to uh, radically uh, change gears on, on uh, policy, on uh, immigration policy here. Uh, and if that happens, then you could get a situation where uh, Australia goes to an election with one side basically committed to our current immigration program and the other side basically saying Australia is full and this needs to stop. And at that point, for the first time ever, Australians would actually be asked to vote on the question of, uh, of multiculturalism and of our um, you know, very aggressive immigration policy, uh, high immigration policy. Can I ask, Sam, so this stems from your kind of the, to link it back what we, to what we were talking about before, we say the party system is struggling, we're having a hollowing out. When you have a hollowing out and political elites in control and not informed by a grassroots base, they turn to desperate measures. One of those desperate measures might be this big switch on immigration. Mm. When you were writing the book, did you think what else this big switch could be? What are, what are the other kind of hidden uh, elite consensuses in Australia where you could have a party seize for a desperate measure that's not immigration, that is something else? Did you canvas some other ideas? Uh, I, I, well, the, the reason I fixed on this one is because I also wanted to write a book about Australia's place in the world and I wanted to basically... Uh, cut across those two worlds, and also write a book that you know had had that immediately grab in the title about how on earth are we going to? Um, uh, why would Australia have a Brexit moment? Um, so I fixed on this one because I thought it was the most dramatic manifestation of the hollowing out phenomenon uh, that I could that I could imagine, and one that would directly affect our place uh, in Asia and our our, our future as a as a country. Um, nevertheless, I think the uh, the hollowing out phenomenon has already had really major effects on Australian politics. Um, and as I said earlier, one of those is the sheer uh, instability that we've had in the last decade in in our leadership, uh, both you know federal governments and federal oppositions, um, much more uh, turnover in uh, in state politics even. Uh, so that's one manifestation. The, the other is the increasing emphasis on the culture wars. And in fact, that, that has tended to uh, really deform our foreign policy. So the, the, I, I would argue that um, uh, illegal immigration has become a culture war issue, which has really damaged our relations with, uh, with our neighbours, particularly Indonesia, but also Malaysia, New Zealand, for a time, even the United States, when Malcolm Turnbull got in trouble with uh, with Donald Trump about um, about the deal that that had been done under the Obama administration. So it's really the, the, these culture wars are a direct outcome of the hollowing out of our politics, and they are deforming our foreign policy already. What about other factors that could be contributing to the salience of these culture war issues, as you put it? So I'm thinking, for instance, of technology and social media. Never before have so many people been able to connect and 
potentially, if they have a more fringe view, connect with others who have that fringe view and potentially bring that view to others and and create small communities online, the so-called polarisation phenomenon. And not just the ability of people from fringe groups to connect, but also the ability of the powers that be, the the manipulators or the persuaders, to use social media and tools of uh, public opinion shaping, of propaganda, uh, to shift how people are thinking on things. Um, Is that also a factor here, or is that less important in your uh, no, mind? No, it's certainly a factor. I would regard social media as an accelerant of all the, the trends that uh, that I've been talking about. But in fact, I would make the almost make the opposite point to yours, uh, Catherine, which is that social media has, in a sense, made the, the the traditional forms of, of uh, propaganda and influence more difficult to implement. I mean, we've been having a debate in this country over summer in light of um, you know the bushfires. We've been having a debate in this country about the influence of the Murdoch media, for instance, on Australia's climate change politics. Uh, but it seems to me that whole debate misses the point uh, because there is so much the, the assumption seems to be that if only the Murdoch media changed its line on climate change, then we could unlock this big policy problem that we've had in Australia uh, on climate change over the last decade. But if you look at Lowy Institute polling, for instance, uh, there's been a solid majority in favour of action on climate change for at least that long, if not longer. So, and in fact, major policy changes have happened in this country with a far lower level of support from the public than we see at the moment on the issue of climate change. So it seems to me the idea that, um, you know, if we could just get the Murdoch media to turn around, then we can solve this problem at a political level, that's a little bit misplaced. Um, it's a dog wagging the tail in a sense. You're saying we've got the we've got momentum here. We don't need to be doing the spin doctoring uh, to change the needle on this. The, the people have a view, and it's not being expressed or, or, yes, or acted right. on at the that's political right. level. Yes. Another way of saying that is is you're, you're talking about the the major political parties flailing about looking for something to grab onto that the major centre is going to agree with them on. That seems to be climate change that the vast majority of Australia is actually keen to see action on. Are the political parties... Uh, are they not adept at reading the Australian electorate? Uh, are they not able to find their way into a, a new era and find a new identity that does resonate with the electorate? Uh, I think probably yes, in the sense that um, political parties being, as I said earlier, being much smaller than they used to be and being fairly closed systems uh, are finding it hard to generate talent. Uh, and so you, we may be producing a generation of politicians which simply doesn't have the kind of antennae that we would have assumed from politicians, uh, politicians having maybe a generation or two ago. But I guess the other thing I'd say about that, Chris, is that it, it may not matter very much in the sense that um, to, to – to see this as an idea or as a, a problem of politicians having insufficient uh, sense of what's worrying the public is really to get the thing backwards. Uh, the, the the more 
at least the more traditional way to see the role of political parties is to see is to say that they are the expression of a social and economic base. So what's happened in more recent times is that as that base has withered away, politicians have started scrambling madly for points of connection with the public. But even if they find them from time to time, it doesn't create a solid, lasting connection in the way that they used to have when they were clearly and, and, and honestly representing uh, you know, a social and economic base that they could you know, rely upon election after election. So the connection with the public, even if um, you know, particular politicians or particular parties find uh, an issue that resonates for a time, it doesn't create a deep connection and it doesn't recreate that sense of authority that I think governments used to have in the public mind. So uh, what that means, I think, for the future is that in, in Australia and I think uh, uh, generally in, in Western democracies as well, uh, is that the authority of governments is likely to be sh- uh, last, uh, f- uh, last for shorter periods of time. There's going to be more turnover in governments uh, and uh, the, the government and politics generally is going to be buffeted more by uh, individual personalities of, of leaders. So uh, parties will find success when they have particularly charismatic leaders uh, because they cannot rely on that big, you know, that old base anymore in the way that they used to, even then when they had uh, duller or less charismatic leaders. Um, and so, for, for instance, j- just one example is the Labor Party, which has, really, has only won one election, federal election outright since uh, 1993, you know, which, which is astonishing. And that was under Kevin Rudd. Uh, so, well, and for international listeners or Australian listeners who've forgotten, Kevin Rudd is not exactly your typical Labor man. Um, he's, he's in many senses and, and was an outsider to yes, the Labor Party. Absolutely right. Uh, so, I think I think actually it's a good example of a trend we, we should be seeing more of in the future. Uh, in syst- political systems where it's difficult to dislodge the big parties that form the that are at the centre of the political system, such as Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom, what you should expect to see instead is that the parties themselves they don't fade away, but they become transformed internally. Trump is the ideal example where you know the virus overtakes the host effectively. Uh, Johnson has done a similar thing to the Tory party. He's made it the 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 pro Brexit party, and increasingly, as we saw in this uh, this last election, it's becoming a working class party. So, looking then into the future, do you have? I mean, it's it's one thing to observe these trends and mm-hmm. say, well, this is the future to expect: more upheaval, more political turmoil, parties trying to find their feet. Do you have views on what could be the circuit breaker here? Is there a future we can look forward to with labour market changes, technological change, uh, environmental changes, or geopolitical change, where we'll see a return to stability? Um, well, first of all, I, I would. I would say that a lot of countries that suffer the kind of that have suffered the kind of party decline that I've talked about, and which have actually for a long time had um, uh, one coalition government after the other, where where no one party is able to form government, function reasonably well that way. In fact, New Zealand 
is a good example. Uh, and a lot of uh, countries in Europe function perfectly well with one you know, coalition government after the other. The Netherlands has had the same prime minister for 10 years, but he's led three different governments, one which had uh, you know, a, a centre-right Christian democratic element, uh, another which has had a Greens element in it, for instance. So countries, mature democracies can function pretty well that way. So that said, I don't see a circuit breaker. I don't expect this situation to improve suddenly. If anything, the kind of trends we talked about earlier um, with you know, the rise of the internet and social media um, is going to make things much more difficult. As I said, I think I think of it as a kind of accelerant of these trends that I'm uh, that I'm thinking of. I mean, the the old political parties were really centres of authority in public life. Uh, so were major media outlets, and in their own way, in this in our time, the authority of both of those uh, inst- political institutions has fallen away. Well, indeed, the authority of most formerly kind of galvanising institutions, be they religions, unions, social organisations, charities, many of them in Australia and abroad are facing challenges to their base, to their legitimacy and to the sense of trust people have in them. Yeah, absolutely. And and really what replaces it is is simply flux. I mean, I, I, I don't see... I don't see a circuit breaker, as you as you put it. Um, it it's we're, we're going to have to find new ways of coping. I mean, the the best idea that I have heard uh, for how uh, politically we can um, maybe reestablish uh, some connection between the political between this void uh, through this void between the political class and the public is this idea of participatory democracy which has been tried at local levels in Australia, so-called citizen juries, where you pick random samples of the public and you ask them to deliberate on uh, big political questions. It's been tried here in the Australian Capital Territory, for instance, and I know it's been tried at local levels in uh, in Melbourne and Sydney as well. Um, that is the best idea that I've seen about how to re-establish some level of trust between the public and the political class. And shake people out of what otherwise seems to be an eternal flux. Yes, indeed. Um, to round out the conversation, I just want to finish uh, on what is really the second part of your book, which is yeah. Australia's place in the world. And it's really a thought experiment, I think, your notion about immigration change. I think some yeah. of the commentators of your book have taken it as a prediction as opposed to more of a let's model what would happen and think about what would happen should uh, we have a reversal immigration policy. But you point out that if there was to be such a thing, it would cause Australia to think about two things. One, we need to think about what we want our identity to be as a nation. And two, we need to think about how powerful we want to be and and how we want to navigate uh, our region. Um, I'd be interested to hear you talk through that a little bit more because what intrigues me is this notion of Australia. I mean, Australia is notorious for wrangling with questions of our identity. Are we Asian? Are we European? Are we something different? And I wonder what does an Asian identity, if Australia was to say this is our identity, what does that mean to you? Because it sounds kind of inchoate to me. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure that question needs to be answered explicitly. Um, at the beginning of the book, there's a brief – I wrote a brief passage in the introduction which has resonated with quite a few people who, uh, who I've talked to who, like me, are immigrants. And what, I've, what I say at the beginning is that uh, in Australia, there are two multiculturalisms happening uh, simultaneously. 
The first one is what I call official multiculturalism, which emerges from from governments, from uh, politicians, uh, from local councils and from universities and from sections of the media. Uh, and that is, I think, a uh, what I'd call an ideological form of multiculturalism, which puts ideas of, of, uh, of tolerance and of essentially of moral subjectivity at its centre. Um, the other kind of multiculturalism in Australia, which I feel much more warmly towards, <laughs> is um, uh, is actual real practice multiculturalism. And it's the multiculturalism that I grew up with as a kid. I, I grew up in uh, a fairly Anglo part of uh, the northern suburbs of Melbourne after emigrating from the Netherlands in 1980. And it's multiculturalism where the word itself is rarely, if ever, mentioned. And it's just a form of tolerance that comes from the fact that when you get all these people from different parts of the world together, any other way of getting along with each other simply wouldn't make sense. You know, it, it would, it's, it's in nobody's interest that, that we're at, that, that different cultural groups are at each other's throats or antagonistic towards each other. We all have to work together. We all have to get along. So we're, t so we're tolerant in that respect. Um, and that's the kind of multiculturalism I know. And it happens in shopping centers and in churches and on soccer pitches, the kind that I used to play on when I was a kid, where you played Greek teams one week and you played Serb teams the next. Uh, and that's, that's become as comfortable as an old pair of shoes for most Australians. So to me, your question about, uh, about an Asian identity will get solved in that way. It's simply that our racial and our cultural makeup is slowly changed to a degree where it simply becomes part of the furniture. Um, and I, I, I think generally the official and the unofficial forms of multiculturalism work largely on opposite tracks and they rarely intersect. Right. And to, to end this part of the discussion off on a very hard national security note, you've mentioned in your book that the hollowing out is handicapping our response to the power shift occurring in the Indo-Pacific. Could you give us some examples of where our responses have been less uh, than productive in terms of supporting the national interest and immigration policy aside, where you think Australian foreign policy is heading, assuming the hollow isn't filled by a properly representative legislative? Well, let me take a, a sort of historical view on that question. I think most foreign policy commentators would agree with the proposition that the rise of China is much more important to Australia than the Soviet Union ever was. I think most com foreign policy commentators would be comfortable with that, uh, with that view. Nevertheless, the Soviet Union and the Cold War were incredibly important for Australia. So important, in fact, that it led to the complete redefinition of our two uh, major political parties. So uh, the Liberal Party, for instance, was from its very earliest days had anti-communism in its DNA. In fact, we the, the Menzies government in 1951 took Australia to a referendum on the question of communism. The Labor Party, on the other hand, struggled with the question of communism throughout the 60s and 1970s and, and was had, had a split over the issue of communism. It was about religion as well, of course, but uh, the DLP, ALP split was, was largely about communist influence. And it wasn't until that split was resolved that Labor was able to uh, form government during the Cold War period. And I think also, crucially, Labor didn't have a sustained period in government during the Cold War until it had resolved the communism question internally and had an explicitly pro-American uh, leader, that is Bob Hawke. 
That's the only time they had sustained period in office during the Cold War. So the Cold War in its own way was transformative of our party system uh, in this country. So now let's get, let me go back to where I began, which was to say that the rise of China is more important to Australia than the Cold War ever was. And yet we think we can enter that period with essentially an unreformed party system that was basically last redefined at the beginning of the Cold War. I don't think that's realistic. I think neither party, it seems to me, has the intellectual energy to really face up to the big question that is that is raised by the rise of China, which is that China is going to become the major power in Asia and that quite possibly uh, our alliance with the United States will not be sustainable in that kind of environment because the United States simply won't have the political will, the political resolve to sustain its place, its leading position in the Asian region. I don't think either of the two major parties has uh, has the energy uh, to really face up to that question. And therefore, our default position up to now has been that we back the United States. But I don't think over the long term, uh, that is going to be a sustainable solution to the problem of China's rise. That's a whole other huge discussion, which we may have a second part to this podcast on in the coming weeks. Now, just to finally round off this whole discussion, something we're going to be asking our guests as they come into the studio this year, I'd like to know, was there a single moment or a seminal moment in your life or your career that has really shaped your approach to your thinking in terms of foreign policy and national security and international security in general? This could be anything from a movie, from a book that you've read or a conversation you've had or even a song that you've heard. What was your seminal moment? What I would say has made the difference for me uh, and what I would regard as, as, as a, almost a kind of advantage that I have over, uh, over my peers in, in the world of political and foreign policy commentary is that very early on in my intellectual development, I was introduced to conservative political thinkers. So initially, uh, Edmund Burke, who's sort of regarded as the father of modern conservative thinking, uh, and then a more modern writer uh, named Roger Scruton, who died recently. Uh, And then I ended up writing my thesis on uh, Michael Oakeshott, who was uh, a very prominent uh, British political conservative philosopher. And I don't call myself conservative these days um, because I find that I find that a little unsatisfying and I can't find it hard to associate myself with very a lot of what that stands for. But what that education in my early sort of political development meant is that i've I've always been able to stand back from the liberal, small l liberal consensus that really dominates thinking among. Uh, I guess, the intelligentsia in this country and in most Western countries. So I I think I've got an ability to stand back and question that in the way that uh, some others don't because it's simply... It's, it's there, that, that liberal mindset is, is just there in the background, uh, unquestioned in the ether. It, it never really is given the kind of scrutiny that it deserves. So that, that, that's my little superpower, at least, I think, in the, uh, uh, in the intellectual debate. Oh, that's, that's a fantastic way to round out the podcast. So, Sam Rogovine, thanks very much for coming and speaking to us today on the National Security Podcast. Thank you both.
And a big thanks to Sam for making his way through Canberra's toxic smoke to come here and be with us today. Be sure to grab a copy of his book, Our Very Own Brexit, published by Penguin and available in hard copy and e-book. As previously discussed in the introduction, we are preparing a special series on the national security implications of climate change. But that is not all. This year being the 10th anniversary of the National Security College and part of those celebrations, we will be putting together two other special podcast series, the first one being on national security, its origins and its future, the second being on the impact of China on national security policy making in the Indo-Pacific. More on those soon, but in the meantime, we're very keen to hear from you on what the issues are that you'd like to hear us discuss. What are the big issues for 2020 and beyond that you think are flying below the radar or that deserve more attention? If you have any opinions on these things, feel free to hit us up at Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Always keen to hear what you have to say about these issues. So thanks very much for listening today and we'll catch you on the next National Security Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.